The Guardian. The recovery in the euro area economy is broadly sound, but the sovereign crisis in the periphery remains a risk and will require continued action and attention to avoid it causing trouble in the core and spilling over uh, to the rest of the world. IMF pressure may have been enough to convince Greek politicians to act, but will the Greek people put up with indefinite austerity? I'm Aditya Chakraborty and this is the Business Podcast. Tax rises, spending cuts, mass redundancies. The immediate future for bankrupt Greece is bleak. But as people in Athens fight back against the political consensus, has the latest bailout snuffed out a further economic crisis or simply delayed it? In the studio this week, we've got all the way from Athens, Aris Chatsi-Stefani, director of the Greek polemical film Detocracy, Philip Hinman, our economics correspondent, and our political columnist Martin Kettle. Welcome to you all. Last weekend, European finance ministers signed off on a further 12 billion euros of aid to Greece. In return, the government in Athens promised further austerity measures. It's a strategy that's already been mocked in some parts as extend and pretend. Extend the loans given to Greece, pretend that it will make the problem go away. And to rub salt into the wounds, Eurogroup chair and Luxembourg Prime Minister Jean-Claude Juncker said this week that Greece's sovereignty will be massively limited by the conditions. Aris, we've heard a bit there about the kind of high finance. We had the IMF, John Lipsky, we had Jean-Claude Juncker mentioned there. How's all this playing out on the streets of Athens? What, what do they make of the kind of the big high-fluting negotiations? I think that the people in Athens don't care anymore if some more loans are coming to Greece because they have realized that with more austerity measures, with uh, more loans, that they actually have one specific reason to protect the banks in the European center in countries like France or Germany so that they will have the time to get rid of the Greek bonds, send it to the European Central Bank, in a way send it back to the European taxpayers. That's not a solution and Greece for many months now uh, has forgotten what growth is about, has forgotten what uh, to have something to hope for is about. So they understand that even if they get all the the money of the debt from uh, European Union, the problem will be there, the problem will remain because it is a structural problem of the Greek economy and of the Eurozone at the same time. When we see pictures from Greece, we see pictures from the central square in Athens, Syntagma Square, and we see protesting public servants or young people, the indignados. Is that an accurate representation of how widespread the protests are, or does it go further than that? Is it further than Athens and young and public servants? It's easier in the centre of Athens to have an optical uh, idea of what's going on in uh, in Greece. Uh, you can see the riot police, you can see people demonstrating, but I think that the same feeling, you have the same feeling all around Greece. You have been to Greece, to Athens recently, and you know that if you are a politician from the two big parties, you cannot walk in the street of Athens because you you will be attacked by the people. And the same applies also for journalists. So there is a bigger problem, not only for economics, but also for democracy, for the political system as a whole in Greece. And that's what the demonstrators are saying, that we cannot continue like that. It's a dead end for us. Okay, um, just thinking about the, the general strike that we saw in, in Greece last week, 
I wonder how much of the kind of protests that you get there are sectional. That is to do with wanting to, people wanting to protect their own particular rights, whether it's their pay or their terms and conditions or their pension. And how much of that is now a wider kind of political and economic, ideological, basically? I think you cannot separate the two in the same way that you couldn't separate it in uh, Tunisia or in Egypt. It started, you know, as a fight for democracy and it continued as a fight for economic rights. I think in Europe, in Spain and in uh, Greece, it's the other way around. It started as an economic problem. People went out uh, asking for their money back, asking for their privilege privileges that they've lost, uh, you know, privileges of a, of a century or more than that. And now they realize that they also have a problem of representation, they have a problem of democracy, they have a problem even with their relation with police. I don't know if you've heard that, uh, but in the last demonstration, the Greek riot police used something like 2008 canisters of tear gas. That's just chemical warfare. And you have to to remember that these chemicals are forbidden by the Geneva Convention. So there is a low-level war going on in in Greece the last few weeks, and uh, we really don't know where this could lead. Philip Inman, when Aris talks about the situation in Greece has been a low-level war or a kind of Aegean Spring to rival the Arab Spring, it does make all the kind of technical and political discussions that we hear in the rest of the eurozone about debt rollovers or debt swaps for greece seems slightly trivial it also makes you wonder how on earth any of this is going to happen if you've got what aris described as a low-level war well obviously what we're seeing in greece is um also what's underlying portugal and ireland and to some extent spain which is that they've got unsustainably high debts and um and they're trying to uh, work their way through it but the debts are too high. I mean, as the Governor of Bank of England said, this is not a crisis of liquidity. And by that, he means of simply not being able to obtain cash today. It's a it's a crisis that is about debt. You know, it's about the fact that everyone's built up far too much debt. And they've got it locked up in different things, whether it's housing crash or other private debts or in their government debt. And uh, they've got to do something about it. And the European bureaucracy in Brussels is desperate to maintain its standard of living and doesn't want to have any more bailouts that involve real money that's writing off those debts. But just sticking on the kind of narrow technical point about the kind of quite detailed negotiations you've had about what Greece must do to get an extra, I don't know, 28 billion euros immediately of uh, loans from Europe and the IMF and then possibly another 100 billion euros. On one level, you've got this quite prescriptive program that's been handed down from Europe and the IMF to Greece and on the other hand you've got this quite huge kind of popular upsurge against it in Greece itself well I mean I think that's where it was you know Martin's going to pick up on that where it spills over into the political I mean on the on the economic side of it you know they are just they are wrestling with something that's intractable at the moment because if you at the moment there's a way the markets are working is that if you say we're going to write off some of that debt then all the people who hold that debt panic because the nature of markets is to panic you wouldn't have think so they're supposedly very intelligent they're very highly paid and they're supposed to see far into the future but they panic nonetheless and they will sell and they will not just sell greece they'll sell portugal and ireland and spain too and today we've had very bad figures out of italy 
and they will sell Italy. And then you have your crisis. Now, all Italy and Spain are unmanageably large economies. There's simply no way you bail these countries out. And then you have your contagion. I was in Japan the other week. They talk, talk but nothing about Greece. Greece is on this, is, is the subject of the moment because they know that contagion means that it wrecks all their delicate plans to rebuild Which involves b- borrowing more from financial markets Which to fund involved, public infrastructure. Absolutely, yeah. because we've all got to get through this crisis and it's very delicately balanced and you can't just throw everything up. Now, the French and the Germans are lying about the, how much they've uh, survived the subprime crisis. They were in it up to their necks. They're disguising how bust their banks are. As, uh, uh, as we heard earlier, they're trying to uh, find a way to construct a very complicated system of bailouts for Greece that protects their banks, when really they have to write that money off. That's bad money. They made a bad investment. They've got to write it off. The German taxpayer has to come up with more money for their banks, just like we did. Martin Kettle, we'll come on to the broader political picture in just a second, but just staying with the, the, the idea of the bailout for a moment, Aris and people in Greece may well be up in arms about having all this austerity imposed on them, but at the same time they're dependent upon cash to be handed to them from essentially Northern Europe, from Germany and France. And it's asking quite a lot of German and French voters to give up cash to fund the kind of lifestyle that they, they themselves aren't given in, 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 their, in their economies. Well, that's right. And I think the, you know, there's that famous saying about by, by the former US uh, um, House of Representatives Speaker Tip O'Neill that all politics is local. I think w- w- the, what we're having he- here in this discussion is all, all, all the economics is global or European, but all the politics, if not local, is certainly national. And uh, therefore, you do have you know, politicians, whether in Greece or anywhere else, are having to answer to their voters. Now, I mean, the Greek government has, uh, you know, has obviously gone out on a, on, on, on a sort of basically on a sort of suicide uh, mission, it seems to me, politically because it seems to me inconceivable in the short run that the socialist government in Greece will could could possibly survive any election and and clearly the new democracy has um, positioned itself to take advantage of that uh, even though probably if the cards had fallen differently and they'd been in in charge when the music stopped it would have been the other way around and uh, you know Every country in Europe, whether north or south, west or east, is, is facing a similar set of local political pressures. And, you know, Angela Merkel in Germany in particular, a weak leader now, weakened by recent elections, um, is highly sensitive to, to, the, you know, to the dissatisfaction of, uh, of uh, German voters uh, w- with this situation. So, I mean, it's, it's, it's an intractable political situation because we do not have a U- European, to coin a phrase, demos. Aris, what's the Greek perspective on, on kind of the sacrifice that you're actually asking the Germans and the French to make to give up to you some money up front on, on a loan? You know, what uh, people doesn't seem to understand is that uh, the debt crisis in Greece wasn't created just because of the structural problem problems of the Greek economy. It wasn't just corruption or it wasn't just the failure of the tax system in Greece, which is true, which is big problems both. We believe, many people start to believe for the last few weeks or months that there are also structural problems in the Eurozone that created 
deficits in the European periphery and uh, debt to the European periphery, while at the same time it was creating surpluses to countries like uh, France or, or Germany. So if you look at the statistics, uh, for many years, Greek economy had even bigger growth rate than Germany. And if you look at the statistics from OECD, you will see that the Greek workers are working more hours than any other nation in Europe, something that no one really knows and no one really understands in, uh, in Greece. So apart from our problems, there are structural problems that created these uh, deficits and this debt. And to tell you the truth, the German workers were the first to pay not the Greeks, but their own government, because they never received the outcome of their work. For almost a decade, their salaries was frozen, and that was the reason that uh, we had this gap of productivity and which created the problem to the European periphery too. That's quite an important point and it's a central argument of your film, Debtocracies. I just wondered if you would take just a minute just to explain the mechanics of that. What you're effectively saying is that in Germany, wages were pretty much stagnant for most of the past decade. In Greece, most of all, but across southern Europe, wages took off. I wouldn't say took off, but there was a small increase that you couldn't see in other countries like Germany. Mm. So what? So how does that foster a crisis within the Eurozone? You know, you have a difference in competitiveness. If, uh, if a country like Germany, which is a huge economy, managed to keep the, the salaries and the pension frozen for a decade, that creates a difference in competitiveness. And in order to survive in these situations, you have to borrow money that creates the deficits. And then if you keep borrowing money, you have this, uh, this enormous debt. You know, what we're saying in Greece now is that even if we change all the corrupted politicians, and we have many, believe me, nothing will change. Probably even if they give us all the money that we need, the 350 billion euros, we will solve the problem just for one or two years because of these structural problems of the Eurozone and of the global financial system that creates problems for small economies that are in the straitjacket, if you like, of the Eurozone. Philip, when you hear that kind of description from... I find it difficult to to go along with. I mean, I think... And I'll just put... I'll be devil's advocate. I'll put a slide, which is that... um, when we all used to joke that when Greece joined the euro that Brussels cut a hole in its pocket that was always the joke about the fact that the Greece had lied Greece had lied to get in to the euro and that it just spent lots of money and that the the working time that you just talked about the fact that everyone's employed and working very hard they're all working very hard building things with eu money so there are tons of money flowing into into greece and the same for portugal the same for spain i went to these countries 20 years ago and you would go on a train up the country and it was a donkey and cart aggregate agrarian culture you go there 20 years later that's all gone and you don't transform over in 20 years through hard work it's just not possible. That money has all come from from somewhere else, at least a lot of it. So, so the, in Brussels, there'll be an entrenched view that an awful lot of the gains of the last 20 years have all been funded by Brussels. And therefore, for you to make a sacrifice now to lose, I don't know, 20, 30% of your 100% gain, well, that's fine. You should be thinking of it as a 70% gain on, the, on 20 years, 70% that you wouldn't have had without being in the euro. 
So they're very resentful towards the Greeks because they think the Greeks are unjustifiably resentful towards Brussels, that lots of money has gone to Greece and therefore you shouldn't be turning around and saying to them, hang on a moment, I'm going to take a slight cut in my living standards. And their Brussels attitude is, well, you wouldn't have any living standards if it wasn't for Brussels. So, so I think there's a very entrenched views here, you know, and that's part of the problem that, uh, that you know, we were really, really bashing up against each other. And, um, and in a way, what I suppose we try and what I try and write about is how to break that and try and free ourselves from that angry exchange with the French and Germans lining up against the Greeks and people in Brussels tearing their hair out and not really knowing what to do to resolve the crisis, uh, which is that you have to admit that we, have, we, ha- we do have a debt crisis, um, but we all do, everybody does, the Germans, the British, the Greeks, everybody, and that we have to have a grander plan to sort that out. And the British are now taking the view that, well, we've paid our debts, we've, we've seen our assets disappear, so we're out of the picture, we're not taking part, we've taken our pain we're not joining in. Um, But we should, we should be joining in, we should be part of the European scheme, we should all be doing that. I think I would just add to that um, devil's advocate position, um, something that I hope is a a bit more, (laughs) I'm trying to be objective here. Um, In in, in the case of, you know, the part of the problem is that the largest the richest nation in all this is Germany. And we always forget, I think it's often left out of the calculation, just how much the German taxpayer, especially the West German taxpayer, has paid since German unification to to basically absorb 16 million East Germans in, into this um, high-tech export-led economy that uh, that Germany uh, is and, and continues to be. And therefore, that, that I think provides, a, you know, a, a real problem at the very heart of solving the process because if you talk about you know rightly i suppose between periphery and center the easiest thing is to talk about the, the real problem being on the periphery but there's also a different real problem at the center and it's the german problem and it's the the the, the hangover from the uh, reunification and the cost that that imposed upon the, the german taxpayer which is now also a political factor in trying to resolve these set of uh, inequalities in in the present situation. Aris. There are some myths here. I accepted uh, from the first moment that there are structural problems in the Greek economy. First of all, we have to make, uh, to understand that it's not the Greek population that took the money, but there are very few people because of the tax system in Greece that creates something like a tax heaven for what can be characterized as the big capital, which is the tech, the churches, which, which have uh, huge amounts of land in Greece. It's the banking system, it's the ship owners, f- uh, people who don't have actually to pay taxes. And that creates a problem with the flows of capital coming from Europe, but never going to the Greek population, going to some people that will send it back to, to foreign banks again. But there is this myth that Greece depends on capital flows at the moment to survive and that if uh, European Union and countries of the Eurozone stop sending us money, we, there will be, you know, just disaster. If you look at the information from the Ministry of uh, Economics, you will see that every year they are getting 53 billion euros from taxes. And Remember, we have the worst tax system that you can imagine. 
and the needs for social uh, security, the needs to pay salaries, to pay pension, even to pay for defense, which is another crime against the Greek population because we are buying weapons like we are in war for the last uh, two centuries or something like that. So for that, we need 51 billion euros. So we have money, as the Greek prime minister would say, but uh, there are many problems in the way that, sorry, we have money if we stop paying a debt that has many characteristics of being odious or illegal in some parts. We are not saying that the German workers didn't pay for this problem, but I would say that it is a problem between the population of all the European countries and political elites inside Europe. It wasn't the Greek population that started eating, as our government saying, you know, whatever was coming from... Uh, and and one last thing. Uh, of course, the central European countries wanted to create a new market. And that's why they started opening uh, Eurozone to many countries, apart from, you know, what could be characterized as Europe a few years ago. That also led to the financialization of the economies and destroyed the productive structure of these economies. And Greece is a characteristic example of, of this. So in order to create their markets, they didn't pay attention to the specific characteristics of each and every economy in the Eurozone. These are structural problems. This is not a lazy nation that eats everything that that can find. It's it's structural pro problems of the eurozone. I think. Uh, in in which case, let me just pick you up on that. When Greece joined the eurozone, it was widely seen as the most enthusiastic about the single currency. What's the current state of play? How do the Greeks feel about the single currency now? I think first of all. I'm glad that we can have this discussion that we couldn't have in Greece. You know, talking about the Eurozone and especially talking about exiting the Eurozone is a taboo subject in Greece. Most commentators and uh, most economists and academics will say that you are lunatic, that there's no way that you can leave uh, the Euro. More serious people will say that Euro and the Eurozone is like Hotel California. You can check in anytime you like, but you can never leave. I think I, I, I cannot agree with this opinion. And I think that for the first time after 20 years, people in Greece started criticizing the Eurozone. We have information that almost 25% of Greek population believe that we should exit the Eurozone. And they have examples from countries like Argentina or Iceland where there was not this problem of being a member of, the, of a monetary union with a very stronger part. It was, for Argentina, it was uh, pegging the, the currency with dollars so they had to compete with the United States economy. In, uh, in Iceland, we saw that because it wasn't a member of the Eurozone, they could uh, devalue the, the currency and they uh, could even put uh, control in capital flows. So they have many examples that countries that weren't part of monetary unions like the Eurozone managed to survive severe debt crisis. And what do opinion polls show in terms of support for the Euro now in Greece? 
people realize, I think it's the Hotel California example for the majority of the people, they are afraid to leave Eurozone because that's what the media are saying and the government is saying. If Sometimes it's ridiculous. They are saying that ATMs will stop giving you money and that uh, your grandparents will die because they, are, they will stop receiving their pensions. So people are afraid. They realize that there is a problem with the euro and the function of the eurozone, but they don't see an alternative. Martin, the euro project was never meant to come come to this sort of pass, was it? Absolutely not. Um, it's funny, the reference to Hotel California we've just been having. I mean, I sort of remember, I think it was David Crosby said of the Eagles, the trouble with the Eagles is they never did anything really hard or difficult. <laughs> and I think um, that in a way that's true of the Eurozone too, if I can <laughs> say that, because the Eurozone put put all the most difficult structural questions, or a lot of them, put, put too many difficult questions to to one side uh, in in pursuit of a, a a monetary union which was not sufficiently backed politically or economically to uh, to be sustainable in a difficult situation well for best part of 20 years it hasn't been a difficult situation but now in spades it's in a very difficult situation and uh, you know those those things are have come back to haunt the euro the euro project now, you know, that's a huge discussion as to about the history, but we are where we are now. And it seems to me uh, that, that the European project, actually at the moment, the wider European project is in quite a lot of uh, a disarray. Because although we, it, you know, it's a very, it's a very strong structure, and it, you know, there's a huge amount politically and economically and financially invested in it. Uh, it's nevertheless going backwards rather than forwards. The idea that has driven the whole thing for the last 30 years of ever closer union, it seems to me no longer applies and that we're now in a situation where we need to kind of recognise that the that the dynamic of Europe is towards a slightly more distant union. Uh, and that is what is happening. That's the world we live in, not just in terms of the Eurozone, but also in terms of things like labour migration, uh, with the abandonment of the Schengen Agreement, and also in things like defence policy. I mean, it's quite striking in, in the Libyan context, for instance. You know, All the NATO nations uh, in Europe voted for the Libyan intervention, but only fewer than half of them have actually taken part in it. And so you have a dis- disjunction there in the, in the operation of the project, which is pretty fundamental, it seems to me. So, I, I mean, I don't think it's all going to collapse like the, the, the Tory right would love it to. And, you know, there is a real kind of schadenfreude in, in Eurosceptic circles about everything that's happening now. I don't, I don't share any of that at all. You know, I find it distressing. But I do think it's happening. And one's got to kind of calibrate the way that the, the politics and economics of Europe over the next couple of decades are likely to to go and it seems to me more likely on the whole that it will that it will be a fracturing process uh, which has got to be managed and managed in a restrained and sympathetic way which safeguards the poor and safeguards the most vulnerable sectors rather than some kind of great utopian project which was really essentially how it was seen 20 years ago or even by Jean Monnet even at the very beginning. Mm. I mean, I think Aris is right when he says that the European elite 
have a real problem because they've been lying, so many of them, to their populations. You know, and this is where we go back to the French and German example. I mean, Aris is talking about leaving the euro and forgetting about all these debts because they know that they have a tax system that can pay for their social welfare uh, if they're not paying interest on their debts. But the but for me, I see it the other way around, was I think the European Union should admit to itself that it's not as wealthy as it thought. It's bought lots of things with its savings that aren't worth, that are worth a fraction of what we thought they were. These are all bonds, by the way. These are all basically we've lent money to people who can't afford to repay it. And we have to write that off. Now, you know, so it's not about refinancing the loan. It's not about extending the loan to 30 years, which is the current plan, and charging 5 to 8% interest, which Greece will never be able to pay. I mean, it's just a ludicrous project from start to finish. Um, they have to forgive some of that debt. Now, if you forgive it, you're not worth as much as you thought you were because people aren't going to pay Your you back. Your balance sheet shrinks. Yeah. yeah. And, and, they, and that's something that we have to go through. Britain has gone through it because we invested in a stock market. Stock market goes down. It's perfectly obvious to us we're worth less than we thought we were. But the Germans or the French, they're still lying about it and they're not telling their populations. And in big pitch terms, this follow-up on the point that Martin's made about the fracturing of the, uh, of the European project, where do you see that leaving the euro? I mean, do you see Greece, perhaps other countries, Portugal leaving, leaving the euro? I don't see anyone leaving the euro at least not for a very long time, not until we've got this way behind us and they've got some kind of method that they put in train. Because as we've all pointed out quite rightly, there is no method. Uh, Martin Wheel, who's now a member of the Monetary Policy Committee, he wrote a paper in the 1990s explaining to Brussels how they had to have an exit strategy, but they ignored him. <laughs> and he'll, he'll quite happily tell you about that. So I think that the world will put pressure on Greece because the world is so conscious that everything is so delicately yeah, balanced. I mean, I think there will always be people also, because the way the European project works still, uh, th- there will be a lot of discussion, which there is, about the possibility of some great leap into the dark by a, a smaller group of nations who will really uh, establish common uh, taxation system and, and, uh, and, and, and there, will be economic, there will be a pressure from Brussels parts of Brussels for a, you know for a more for a faster European political and uh, and, and economic union to support a, you know a viable core eurozone but I think it will just be all talk to me it's just like those kind of weird American religious people saying you know that we're living in the end times and somewhat you know and and some kind of great event is suddenly going to take in which we'll all be saved and it's about as realistic as that i think so really we're talking what i think we're talking about all the time is 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 management of a of a dysfunctional situation in the least bad way and i think that's really the the task facing policymakers at the moment aris i want to come back to you just for for the end part of the discussion uh, and talk a bit about what, where Greece goes from now and the political situation in Greece. Uh, but before we do that, let's hear a, a clip from your own film, Detocracy, just to show how the Greek political class handled the crisis. Here's Theodore Pangalos, Deputy Prime Minister. People ask us, what did you do with the money? We made you civil servants. We all had a part in this. 
Uh, Aris, by the way, there is the second myth here yeah. that in Greece we have a huge public sector that we should slash and start privatizing everything. If you see the statistics again, it's in the European average. It's not working. That's another story. It's not. It's you should uh, destroy it and uh, you know rebuild it from scratch. But we don't have a big public sector as our government is saying. No, your public sector workforce is about the same as the. Per, per head is the same as Britain's, I think. One in four workers of public sector. That that clip was featured in your film just to show how badly the the kind of the establishment in Greece handled the crisis and how out of touch they were with the people. What happens now with the government if it's presiding over these huge waves of strikes and protests that keep coming round? I mean, how much can it force through these austerity measures? I think that the government, the Greek government, is a zombie government at the moment. Uh, it's uh, living dead. It, it will probably survive through the summer, but that doesn't actually mean anything. And the fact that it managed to pass the new austerity bill, again, doesn't say anything. The fact that it has the, the possibility inside the parliament to control the situation doesn't mean that it can control the country. There are many people who say even if the workers in the public sector, even in the police, if they will keep following orders uh, when you have everyday classes with demonstrators in the, in the center of Athens. The problem is that there's no other political party ready at the moment to to take control there's no left left-wing parties with a specific program to say something different from what the neoliberal so-called socialist government of uh, mr george papandreou is saying so there's no alternative what about the, the right I mean, New Democracy, who Martin talked about earlier, they've actually now positioned themselves against austerity measures. They are trying, but it was, <coughs> excuse me, it was the the party that created uh, that uh, created the problem just a few years ago, and people cannot forget about that. There is at the same side, time some uh, extreme right wing parties, but. I want to believe that we won't have a continuation of what happened in Hungary, for example, because the the rage against the economic policy is more, not left-wing, but more progressive, I think. Although we have many incidents of right-wing violence the last few months in central Athens, I want to believe that this is not the future. But the problem is that we cannot predict the future. We don't know what happened. I'm sure that there will be, I predict a riot, as the, as the song uh, says. And sometimes, you know, even if you don't have the political organization to, to bring these uh, raids and to, to create something useful with these raids, sometimes even that is positive. And again, we can look at the example of Argentina. Because of the riots, because of the demonstrations, because of the constant pressure from the population to the government, a right-wing government of Kirchner said no to IMF, said no to the foreign lenders, and managed to save millions of people that were below the poverty line. And you can see a kind of populist alternative emerging in Greece, can you? We cannot really predict, but even from the socialists or the right-wing party, if they are feeling constantly this pressure from the people, probably they will decide that they cannot just killing the population in order to, to repay some debts. 
Well, that's all we've got time for this week, but you can carry on the discussion on our blog, which is over at guardian.co.uk forward slash business. And you can find Aris's film, Detocracy, on YouTube with full English subtitles. My thanks to Aris, Martin and Philip. The producer was Phil Maynard. Thanks for listening. For more great downloads, go to guardian.co.uk forward slash audio.